Confederate cancel culture. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with Kevin Levin of Civil War Memory and Todd Gross of the Georgia Historical Society about James Longstreet and post-war attempts by Confederates to write him out of the history, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. This episode is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states. Civil War Trails puts you in the footsteps of famous generals, freedom fighters, and tenacious women. Follow the great campaigns turn by turn, take a historic hike, and explore beautiful downtowns. Snap a signed selfie along the way. Request your brochure today at civilwartrails.org. Follow Civil War Trails and create some history of your own. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me from Massachusetts is my friend Kevin Levin from Civil War Memory, which is must-read stuff for folks who are uh, grappling with, with Civil War memory and history. Kevin, welcome. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks. Oh, delighted to have you back with us. And coming from the great state of Georgia, where things are always peachy, is my friend Todd Gross, President and CEO of the Georgia Historical Society. Todd, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Uh, so uh, the reason I have assembled this great little brain trust together is because um, recently Kevin wrote this post that I thought was fascinating about James Longstreet as a victim of cancel culture and specifically Confederate cancel culture. And in that, he he cited some work that uh, Todd has done. And I thought that it was worth exploring a little bit. Um, Kevin, first of all, just so we have a basis of conversation for common vocabulary. How do you define cancel culture? Oh, I, I, you know, that's a great question, Chris. And, you know, I struggled to define it because to be completely honest, I think it means different things to different people. I mean, it, 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 it is so, it is so couched in a political language. It has so many political overtones uh, that I hesitate to sort of trying to, to nail it down. In fact, you know, I, I sort of try as much as possible to resist such language, but um, I, I think a, a broad definition is um, a tendency among certain people to believe that, uh, to sort of use that as a catch-all phrase when uh, certain things are not supposed to be discussed or um, written about. Um, you know, sometimes we hear the word erasure, uh, you know, in, in this context, in the context of history and monuments, if you are, um, if you support removing something, you are engaging in cancel culture. Uh, I mean, it, it can be used in so many different ways. And, and, and perhaps as we move along here, we can flesh it out a bit more. But I'm, I'm going to sort of leave it at that. Maybe Todd wants to uh, take that on. No, I think I think is usually used, as you were just saying, though, in terms of something that's been part of the narrative or part of our culture, part of our society, that for whatever political reason, a group of people are trying to eliminate it now to try to make sure that it goes away. And it really, I think, has more to do with memory than it does with history itself. The idea that we are going to eliminate somebody from popular memory, popular understanding, so that they disappear 
from the narrative and we'll no longer know who they are in some way. Right. And there's usually some kind of a nefarious sort of undertone to all of it that's being done for the wrong reasons, being done for political reasons. Uh, and the idea that that somehow we can basic, basically make someone disappear from the historical record in some way. Yeah. And, you know, I should point out that it happens both on the political left and the political right. And cancel culture means different things to both sides of that spectrum. Uh, and as soon as I even use the word cancel culture, there are going to be people who automatically think X or Y. Um, but it's actually something that happens all across the spectrum for different reasons. Um, and that, I think, is one reason why it makes it so hard to nail down a specific definition. I think about that old, old definition of obscenity. Like, I can't define it. I just know what it is when I see it, you know? Yeah. Um, and what is cancel culture? Um, and and I think I, that's something know, real fast, Chris, just to sort of um, build on, on what Todd is getting at, because I think he's right, just to sort of help us sort of frame this, that it does come up in our world in the context of memory. And I think it's important to remember, well, perhaps it's it's um, it's more a piece of advice than rather just sort of reaching for um, this language of cancel culture, that we appreciate the ways in which memory and historical memory or popular memory has always um, evolved, right? There are stories that we, uh, that have been with us for, you know, going back to the beginning or the founding of the nation and even before there are stories that get added at certain points there are stories that we um revise in certain ways and there are stories that we no longer tell ourselves about ourselves and our history so it's it, i think todd's right that it's important for us to understand that we're talking about um something that's very organic and that is always evolving I think that also maybe gives us an opportunity to just briefly talk about that difference between memory and history, which are two distinct things, although people often say like, oh, you're trying to erase history, when in fact you're really talking about the memory of something. Uh, Kevin, I'll let you start with that one since the title of your fabulous substack is Civil War Memory. But I know from Todd's point of view, as someone in charge of a historical society, there are some real rubber meets the road issues there too. Yeah, I look forward to hearing from him as well on this. but. As I understand it, history is uh, the critical study of the past. It's it's what we do as historians. Uh, it's the analysis of historical sources. It's the framing of questions. It's trying to construct an interpretation. It's um, it it's about the past, right? It's about something that we believe existed at one point in time. Um, it's constantly being revised, right? So revisionism in our world of History, the world of historians, is a good thing because we're always asking new questions. We're also always finding new evidence, and we're always finding ways of reinterpreting evidence based on where we are in time. We are very much, I think, part of that process of interpretation. And how we interpret in 2023 is very different from how Americans interpreted in, say, 1950. And who gets um, who's included in the world of historians as well? If we think of women, if we uh, if we include other minorities, right? We can go back not too far and find that it was much narrower in terms of who was doing the interpreting. Memory I see as something much more, um, as I suggested a few minutes ago, is always evolving. Memory to me involves or includes the stories that we tell ourselves um, about ourselves as members of families, as members of local communities, 
organizations and especially as members of a nation. And memory to me is always about the rememberer, right? Uh, if you want to understand um, why certain memories are you know, take hold at different times, why monuments get put up at a certain point in time, look at the people who are doing that work. Look at the people who are uh, who are moved to remember the past and remember the past. And so memory for me is um, in contrast with history or critical history is, is certainly evolving, but the people who are doing the remembering, I suspect, especially in the context of the Civil War, uh, I think at different points expect that their memory of the past will remain um, for the foreseeable future, if not, you know, um, forever. Um, and, and so I think that's where we also see some of the clashes uh, in terms of memory, because of course people have different ways of remembering the past as well. So I'll let Todd add, Todd add to that. Um, well, one of the things I think is important, and this is something that we talk about here a lot with the public. Todd, at, you want to talk Georgia, a little bit about that? At the Georgia Historical Society, one of the things that we, we, we deal with a lot here is this idea that the past and history are not the same thing. The past doesn't change. We add new facts. We do learn some new things. But the past and the history are not exactly the same thing. History is the meaning that the present gives to the past. Mm. And as we change, the way that we understand the meaning that we give to the past will change. So this is something that's very difficult for people to sort of wrap their minds around. All history is revisionism by its very definition. I had someone the other day that asked me, they said, uh, when did all this revisionism stuff start? And I said, about 2,500 years ago when Thucydides read Herodotus and said, no, that's not how it happened. And there's a really good book. In fact, I was just writing a column about this by James Banner. It's called The Ever-Changing Past, Why All History is Revisionist History. Now, I would argue with the title because it's not the past that changes. It's the history that itself that changes. So as Kevin said, we find ourselves in different places, the way that we look back on the past. It's the telling of that story that changes because we as a society change, we find ourselves in a different place. So the meaning to that we give to those facts and our understanding and interpretation of those facts will be different. Yes, history is, we, you know, when I was in graduate school, what we learned was that history is a reasoned reconstruction of the past based upon the documentary evidence that's available to us. And again, that will change over time. Whereas, as you were pointing out, memory tends to be much more static in the sense that when it is forged and created, people think that it will stay that way forever. And it is a very emotional engagement with the past, as opposed to something where we're trying to be objective, we're trying to get at the truth, we're gonna follow that evidence wherever it goes. With memory, it's more of an embrace. Mm. It's more of an emotional feeling that we have. And it tends to focus around monuments, and it focuses around those ancient stories that we've told. It focuses around sites. And it is, it just, it has a very different feel to it in terms of how you understand the past. And it is about how we remember the past and who gets to remember that past and who gets to promote that. There was a statue over here in, uh, in Georgia in Decatur County. And well, I said a statue, it was actually a, a cannon. And this was a, this was a monument from, the 1836 removal of the Cherokee Indians. And it was something, a cannon that was mounted on a base and it just said a relic 
of the War of 1836. And there were groups of people that wanted to have it removed. And it wasn't because they didn't want us to remember the Cherokee removal. What they were saying was, this is not the best way to remember it. This is not how we should remember it. It's being remembered from very much from a white perspective as a, but the power of this canon that's, that, was, that was there. And this group of people were saying, it's not about not remembering it. We need to know this story, but it's about how we tell the story and how we remember it and who gets to tell that story. And we've talked about this many times before because so much of this is really about power. It's not really about history. It's about who's in charge and who gets to tell the story. So um, that to me seems to be one of the fundamental misunderstandings because of the way that we, I think part of the way we teach history to children. There is no child that grows up to be an adult that doesn't understand what math or biology, what they are. But because we teach history as a bunch of facts to be remembered, as adults, people think this is what history is. And so I think probably three quarters of the problems that we have right now could be solved if we could all come to a mutual understanding agreement on the definition of what history really is. And in that sense, it is not memory. And I think that's really where so much of the fault line lies with in terms of why we struggle over so many of these things. Yeah, well said. And, and Todd, I know that that's got practical applications for you um, as you oversee an incredible collection of archival material and artifacts. You know, people deciding, well, yes, we should we should save this or not save this. Remember this or not save this. This is worth saving. This isn't. And your job is to kind of hold on to these bits of evidence and these these documents. Uh, and suddenly, some people want to cast judgment about what's worth saving, what's not, and how that tells a story. Well, it is a challenge. And one of the questions that we deal with here is, in terms, we look at something, we say, what is the research value of this particular document, artifact? But we also have to ask, tell ourselves, we don't know what questions historians are going to be asking in a hundred years from now. We don't know what, what use will this be to them. We may think this is something that's just junk. And we talk, we always use the example around here of a phone book. That just looks like junk to us. But maybe in 100 years from now, a historian could use that to be able to, to determine patterns of way that way people lived within a city. So we just don't know. And so we tend to err on the side of taking more than less, uh, because, again, something may look like junk, but maybe eventually it will not be. Then you have the question on the other side, which is when there are things that you are preserving and other people think it is not but that in the process of preserving it, you are glorifying it. There was an example of a, some Ku Klux Klan records that a major university in the Midwest had acquired and they processed the collection and they made it available for research. And there were people that accused them of glorifying the Ku Klux Klan by preserving this material. And they said, well, no, this is crazy. We're doing just the opposite. How can we know the evil of, of what happened? How can we know these bad things that happened if we get rid of this evidence? So it can come from both sides, as we pointed out earlier, that no one side really has got an exclusive uh, hold on this. And it's a very difficult thing to know exactly what we should preserve and what not to preserve. And then you also, we also have to deal with people who see preserving something as being a glorification of it. And as I always tell people, my job as a historian is not to praise or to condemn the past, but to understand it. If I praise it or condemn it, you learn a lot about me and my politics, but you really don't learn a lot about 
this historical figure or event. And so we have to stay focused on, on that and not passing that judgment one way or the other. Now, when you talk about a historical person or event, I think that's a great transition into our specific topic here because uh, James Longstreet provides a great case study. I know that, uh, and I'll tread some politically sensitive ground here for a second, where um, a lot of folks say that, well, Confederate memory gets canceled a lot, but it's, you know, the Confederates themselves were also cancelers, which is, I think, a point that Kevin was making in his recent piece. So, Kevin, uh, tell me a little bit about that idea of Confederate cancel culture and how Longstreet situates uh, in that larger conversation. Well, I think I'll start off by saying I get the sense today, and I think this is largely a product of the debate we're having about Confederate memory, about you know the public display of flags and obviously the monument debate. There's, I think, a, a tendency to reduce the history and memory of the Confederacy and to sort of situate the Confederacy versus the United States has obviously, you know, some kind of morality play. We have a sort of a classic sort of case study of good versus evil here. And I, I think the history of the Confederacy has suffered a great deal as a result of that in terms of the sort of popular imagination. Um, because, I, you know, we, we tend to... Um, we tend to run roughshod over distinctions and complexity when our understanding of history is is sort of taking place within a very volatile and divisive public political debate. So I want to sort of start off by acknowledging that. And, you know, but what I find so interesting is that once you actually get into the, the history of Confederate memory, especially the lost cause, what you quickly find out is that, you know, Confederates, former Confederates, um, were feuding with one another during the post-war years. Uh, in other words, um, <laughs> former Confederates follow a number of different paths. Many of them become sort of the diehard uh, lost causers like Jubal Early. You can think of John Gordon. You can think of any number of people uh, who you know author some important uh, histories, articles in the Southern Historical Society papers, for example. Uh, and they largely frame what we now understand as the lost cause. And then there are others like James Longstreet, who after the war aligns himself with the Republican Party, um, commands the Louisiana biracial uh, militia after the war, accepts appointments from the Grant administration as an ambassador at one point, is highly critical of, of course, as we all know, of Robert E. Lee, especially his performance at, at Gettysburg. Um, Longstreet doesn't really sort of fit into that lost cause uh, framework. And one of the things I found so intriguing about uh, Elizabeth Varon's new book, which is coming out uh, next month, I was able to get a an advanced copy, is she spends a great deal of time focusing on his post-war career. And it just sort of reminded me of just how important it is to, again, acknowledge the complexity of the past. I'm not sort of suggesting that we erect monuments of James Longstreet or celebrate him in various ways. But it is an important historical reminder that the post-war period was volatile. There was nothing inevitable about uh, the lost cause framework becoming one of the most popular, if not the popular um, narrative of Civil War memory. There was nothing inevitable about um, the rise of Jim Crow by the end of the uh, 19th century the history of this country could have taken any number of paths. And I think we better understand that 
by understanding people like uh, James Longstreet, understanding former Confederates like William Mahone of Virginia, who led one of the most successful, if not the most successful, biracial political party in Virginia between 1879 and 1883 called the Readjusters. And he was someone, of course, as many of uh, your listeners know, uh, was responsible for the Confederate victory at the Crater, uh, the place where the Army of uh, Army of Northern Virginia first came in contact with a large number of United States colored troops and, of course, uh, slaughtered a significant number as well. Longstreet's path, I'm sorry, uh, Mahone's path, no one would have anticipated Mahone taking that trajectory, and yet he did. And so there's a lot we can learn about the dynamics of that post-war period through people like Longstreet. And I think it's interesting when you talk about even the creation of the lost cause, and, and you talked about Jubal Early and John Brown Gordon, who didn't like each other at all. And they've got like different strands of the lost cause that they're responsible for, too. So even within that memory set there are um, shades of difference and complexities that you talk about Absolutely. i kind of like to, to hold up Longstreet as a kind of a juxtaposition against uh, john singleton mosby you know both of them after the war become republicans join the administration and mosby is not nearly as vilified as longstreet because mosby didn't criticize lee the way longstreet did and so again I'll, just these shades of complexity i'll give you one more example i was telling todd about this after i finish my biography of shaw i'm going to finish editing the letters of um, a South Carolinian named John Christopher Winsmith, who was a diehard uh, Confederate during the war. And in fact, his father was the one who introduced the resolution, uh, the secession resolution in South Carolina. And so both father and son, both diehard uh, uh, Confederates, and it's a massive collection of letters. But after the war, both father and son became radical Republicans. In fact, the last letter that this Winsmith character wrote before he died in the 1870s was to William Lloyd Garrison here in Boston. I mean, there are high profile examples like that, but then I think we've, we haven't explored this sufficiently. I think there's a whole landscape of interesting stories of high ranking, rank and file Confederates and the different paths that they took in terms of how they um, came to terms with their war experience, how they came to terms with Reconstruction, including, of course, join, joining the Klan, of course. I don't want to ignore the importance of that, but just trying to get a sense of where many of these people were, the lives they tried to lead um, after uh, their their experience at war for four years. But that, but that larger point, I think, that you made earlier is really important, is that this is a time of flux when the dominant narrative hasn't become quite clear yet. And it could go in a variety of different directions. It, ultimately, we know what that dominant narrative becomes, and it is the lost cause. But in the process of that, you have to write certain people out of the story. This is the the canceling that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. At, at Longstreet himself is not completely canceled. I mean, we continue to know. We, we can think of other examples of people who were really canceled because they disappeared from the narrative. Southern Unionists, for instance, yeah. really disappeared from the narrative uh, we don't, I mean, their story becomes completely lost in the idea of white Southern solidarity against the Yankee invasion, against Reconstruction. Um, another person that um, here in Georgia that uh, we that we had an encounter with and have tried to resurrect his story is Amos T. Ackerman. Uh, Ackerman was a lawyer before the war. He lived, uh, he trained here in Savannah. He's a lawyer. He went to Cartersville. Uh, when the war, he was a slave owner. 
When the war began, uh, he joined the Confederate Army. And then when the war was over with, much like Longstreet, he repudiated his Confederate past. And he said, you know what? We've got an opportunity here to do something new. And like Longstreet, became more of a critic of his region rather than a complete defender of the old order. He became an advocate of African-American civil rights and ultimately joined the Republican Party. And ultimately, then he gets the attention of Ulysses S. Grant. And President Grant makes him U.S. attorney for Georgia. Mm -hmm. And in 1870, he brings him to Washington, D.C., appoints him as as uh, U.S. Attorney General, and he says, you've got one major mission, and that is to destroy the Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, he does do. That first Klan is badly damaged by the thousands of indictments that Ackerman brought against all of these, uh, these uh, basically this paramilitary organization of the Democratic Party. He also forms an investigative service of the Department of Justice that eventually morphs into the, the FBI, so here's somebody that you, you think, OK, well, surely Georgia would know all about him. We would hold him up. He would be someone that would be an important part of our state's history. And yet it really wasn't until I read Ron, Ron Chernow's biography that I'd even seen the man's name before. And the more that I learned about him, the more I thought we need to tell his story. So we administer the historical marker program. We are a private institution, but we do this under a private public partnership. I went and looked. There is There are two thousand old state historical markers in, in Georgia that were put up before 1998. Not a single one of them was about Amos T. Ackerman. So we corrected that. We put up a marker at his house in Cartersville telling his story. But if you think about it, it, it makes sense because when the program started in the 1950s, Amos T. Ackerman didn't fit the narrative of the lost cause. And so he had been, in essence, he had been canceled from public memory he was lost from public memory until we were able to finally resurrect that story and 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 to tell it once again and give him some some coverage, I guess you'd call it, and and let people know that also that there was an alternative path that we did not take. And I think that's an important part of all this, that there was an opportunity. And as Kevin said, it's not clear which way things are going to go. Things could have gone in a different direction. In fact, one could argue that. Reconstruction itself was that great missed opportunity mm -hmm. in American history that if things had gone a certain way, Martin Luther King Jr. would have died an old preacher. I mean, it, it, there would have been no civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. None of that would have had to have happened. It's one of those great what ifs in American history. When I think about the, uh, you, know, you talk about, um, you know, the narrative and and memory is as much about the rememberer as anything else. And, and when you talk about those signs going up in the 1950s and you think about what's going on in the South during that time or leading up to that time and the civil rights movement just getting going and the Klan's resurgence that had happened and, you know, folks in power don't necessarily want to hold up someone like Ackerman who was against the very things that those folks in power are now advocating. And so certainly easy enough to shuffle someone like that to the side. Um, Todd, you offered a really good example of how Longstreet sort of personified this idea of Confederate, cult, uh, Confederate culture in, in Kevin's piece. Could you talk about that for just a second, please? Well, you know, it's interesting to me to look at his career after the war versus another Georgian, John B. Gordon. Uh, if you were to take a snapshot in 1866, 65, 66, 
and say, who was the greatest Georgian of the Civil War? I think there would be probably a, a, a consensus that James Longstreet stood out among all the rest. Now, I, there's a, I went and looked to see what historical markers said about these guys. I found the one that was put up in 1958 for John B. Gordon. And it said that John B. Gordon was the greatest military figure in Georgia history. I would argue that William T. Sherman was the greatest military figure in Georgia history. Not the greatest Georgian, but certainly there's no one who had a greater impact militarily on this state than William T. Sherman. But the idea that in 1958, that it was John B. Gordon and not James Longstreet, I think would have come as a surprise right after the Civil War in 1865-66. Uh, Gordon not taking anything away from his record, but Longstreet had been commander of the First Corps. He had been the, the he, was, he was Robert E. Lee's war horse. Uh, and then he made the mistake, as Kevin alluded to earlier, of coming out in favor of African-American rights, joining the Republican Party, taking patronage, but even more importantly, saying to fellow Southerners, we have to accept Reconstruction. We have to accept that we lost this, and there are certain things that we need to do in order to, to come back and be a part of the United States again. He wrote these four letters uh, that were published and a firestorm, this was 1868, 67, 68, writes these letters as a huge firestorm he wrote. Uh, and he is attacked from every angle. And um, I think Elizabeth Barron points out that uh, the, one, of the, one of the most extreme cases of this was the Mobile newspaper said that it's too bad that when Longstreet was wounded at the wilderness that it wasn't mortal, yeah. that he hadn't been killed because he basically is becoming a, a, a tool of, of, the, of uh, the Yankees and of, of the Reconstructionists. So he goes on then, he criticizes Lee. I mean, he, it's like everything that you can imagine he could do wrong, he ends up doing wrong. But I think what Professor Barron's point was is, is that he, is a, he has become a critic. He doesn't hate the South. He hasn't become a traitor to the South. He's accused of being a race traitor, of siding with Black people. It's like the worst thing you can do is he's accused of being a scalawag, uh, which is even worse than being a carpetbagger because somehow he's supposed to know better. He's one of us. How could he turn his back on us? And so all of that, the cumulative, ultimately means that when the authors of The Lost Cause, chief among whom is Jubal Early, you know, Early gives this speech in which basically for the very first time he says, you want to know why the war was lost? Look no further than James Longstreet, Gettysburg, and the fact that he was late that day getting into position, launching that attack. I even saw a picture once of Douglas Southall Freeman's father standing in front of a mantle in his home. This would be in the early 1900s. And there was a big placard up on the mantle that said, Longstreet was late. It was sort of like, that's all you needed to know about the Civil War as to why we lost the war. Now, John B. Gordon takes a completely opposite course. Uh, Gordon is reputedly was the head of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia. Uh, he, he embraces the new order of things only up to a point. Um, he initially has some favor with African-American rights, but the idea is that he wants to get, he knows that, that if, that if um, black people, if white people don't join with black people, that the reconstruction government is going to continue. 
And eventually he takes a very different course. He embraces the lost cause. He becomes a self-promoter. This book that he wrote, his reminiscence, I mean, he's at the center of every important event that happens. Uh, I, f- I figured that's why his sign was so complimentary. He must have written yes, that himself. Right. You know? He may have written it himself, right, yeah. So, um, you know, he, so that by the time when he dies in the early 1900s, he has become the living embodiment of the Confederacy, not just for Georgians, but for Southerners in general, first commander of the United Confederate Veterans. And it is the reason, it explains the reason why it is his statue that is at the Georgia Capitol. On the grounds of the Georgia Capitol, there is one Confederate general, and it is John B. Gordon. It is not James Longstreet. Again, if you were to go back to the 1862, right after the war, if they were to put a statue up, it would have been Longstreet and not John B. Gordon. But that intervening history in there means that Longstreet, is he politically is not, they just can't stomach it anymore. I'm going to ask you to comment on this. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. ahead. Just real fast, I was just going to add that one of the really interesting points that Varon makes in this book, and I just didn't appreciate about Longstreet before, is that, you know, his perception among his, uh, among former Confederates is that he was a race trader, a traitor to the South. But I sort of lost sight. I just didn't appreciate the extent to which Longstreet actually believed that this was the best way forward to maintain white control of the South. You're going to have to acknowledge Black political rights to a certain extent. You're going to also have to tolerate uh, 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 Black political uh, leaders to a certain extent. But all in all, he thought this strategically was the best way forward. Uh, and I think that's that's a kind of complexity of the past here that, um, that I think is worth remembering about Longstreet, that he still sort of saw himself as fighting for the South, right? Fighting for home rule, in a sense. Yeah, Sorry. Kevin, I was just going to ask you to, to comment on Longstreet and Gordon. I, I wanted to just interject one little thing that Todd had said about uh, Jubal Early talking about Longstreet being late. I always feel like I have to stick up for Dick Yule and, and Longstreet because uh, you, Early spends a lot of time shifting blame onto everybody else because he's the one who doesn't capture Culp's Hill. And so uh, one could... I think credibly argue that the loss at Gettysburg for the Confederates is really Early's fault. And so he's got to shift that blame to everybody else as a result. So that's why Longstreet is late. Yeah, there's a great story. Uh, Mahone and Early uh, almost uh, dueled at one point in the late 1870s. And they started up a correspondence uh, that eventually was published. And and if you can get your hands on, um, I don't know if it's available online, but it's just fascinating to read. And one of the points that must have really irked Jubal Early uh, comes from William Mahoney. He says at one point, he says, although his name was Early, he was always late to the battlefield. <laughs> you can just imagine old Jube, right? <laughs> Fuming. He was late. So, so Kevin, juxtapose for me. Um, Longstreet versus Gordon. You know, Todd offered us lots of things to think about. I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about both of, the, about both of these generals as well. Oh, I don't know if I can add much more than than what Todd has uh, laid out here, because I, I think that was just sort of um, perfectly framed. I think um, one of the things I find interesting, however, with uh, with Gordon, if I'm remembering correctly, is that there was a certain attempt to engage in um, reconciliation at some point with some Northerners. I think he had a correspondence at one point with Chamberlain, uh, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, over the surrender at Appomattox. I think uh, to a certain extent, we can 
I mean, that sort of image of um, the surrender scene, scene at Appomattox, where it's, um, it's, it's the United States soldiers who offer the salute at one point, or they, yep, they yep. come to attention. And I think if I remember correctly, I have to go back and check, but um, one of the reasons you know we, we believe that is because of both Chamberlain and Gordon in terms of their account, but I'm not quite sure it's it's backed up by much else. I could be wrong about that. I probably no, I should right. read Carrie Janey's book, but um, I think you're right. They coordinated their stories. Yeah, yeah. And he was absolutely an advocate of reconciliation because the lost cause and reconciliation went together. Oh, they absolutely and, did. They and overlapped. he was absolutely and and as and as Chris pointed out earlier, also, and he didn't criticize Robert E. Lee. In fact, yeah, he talked about right. you know he gave that speech over and over again. Uh, Lee and uh, the last day of Lee and his paladins. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, Kevin, what are other ways that you have seen Longstreet uh, as the victim of Confederate cancel culture? You know, that's a good question. I, I think it does come. We've been sort of talking about um, Gettysburg here and there. And, you know, as someone who sort of, yeah, I mean, as someone who lives online and reads a lot of websites and a lot of them are, um you know, websites that focus on Civil War military history, um, there is still a lot of back and forth. Longstreet still is the sort of central actor in, in the Gettysburg saga. And I, you know, I think that certainly comes down to the broader debate in which, you know, we've been discussing over the last half hour or so that um, he's always been controversial, um, you know, going back to the the immediate post-war period. Um and I think that has certainly, it's certainly focus, continuing to focus on Longstreet as a central actor certainly makes sense when it comes to Gettysburg. Uh, no doubt he is uh, an important component uh, of that story. Uh, but at times I, I wonder whether or not the extent to which we are focused on Longstreet is uh, in a sense of uh, we've inherited that earlier debate and we're still trying to sort of play it out in a way. Uh, in other words, there are other things to talk about when it comes to the battle of the campaign at Gettysburg. Um, so I think that's one way in which, um, you know, Longstreet continues to come up as a, as a controversial figure. You don't hear that much. However, <clears throat> I find this interesting. There's one Facebook uh, page that I, I, I look at every once in a while. It's very much what you might call a neo-Confederate page. And I look at it because I'm just curious as to what people are thinking about, uh, what they're discussing. And Longstreet, um, you know, almost always when he's brought up, he's, you know, he is, um, he's praised, he's complimented. It's it's always in a positive, it's never Longstreet the, the scalawag. And I think that's kind of interesting because, um, you know, given perhaps some of the, uh, political beliefs of some of these people on 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 the on this uh, on this specific page, or um, just their sense, their they tend to claim that they have a, a firm grasp of uh, Confederate history, that they are the defenders of the Confederate past, and they seem to be completely unaware of the post-war debate involving Longstreet. So I find, in other words, they have really uh, bought into the lost cause notion of a unified. Confederacy during the war and apparently a unified uh, Confederate memory after the war. And so I find that um, I, I find that kind of interesting. Well, I note you also, oh, I, I, I was just going to say, you think to some extent, though, too, that the movie Gettysburg 
Oh, really? I mean, there's such a, a reconstitution point. because it's largely based on on Longstreet's book, Appomattox from um, from Manassas to Appomattox, and and Longstreet is so reconstituted in that movie that and it, that had such a huge impact that for many people, look what it did to Chamberlain. I mean, it, it transformed him into this hero. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it seems like it's done the same thing with Longstreet to the point where, as you pointed out, maybe people don't even know. If, if unless you are a student of the war, you probably don't, you would have no idea that somehow Longstreet had been blamed for a Confederate loss. And certainly in that movie, he's the guy who looks like he's got the common sense. Yeah. And that Lee looks like the one who's just totally out of touch. Of course, great we're point. seeing that through the lens of Longstreet's memory of all of it, too. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, Killer Angels as a novel, um, you know, and then its impact on Gettysburg, its impact on uh, Ken Burns. I mean, did so much to redefine our modern perceptions of Longstreet. Um, and, and that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. I'll uh, kind of bring a couple examples in from the battlefields here around Fredericksburg that sort of talk, uh, you know, illustrate how Longstreet's written out of the history. Um, if you're in the Fredericksburg battlefield, uh, of course, Longstreet was in the on the north end of the field there, Stonewall Jackson on the southern end of the field. And if you look at the War Department signs that were were put up in the early 1930s, um, at the south end of the field where Jackson was, it says Jackson's Corps, Jackson's Corps, Jackson's Corps, instead of the division commanders. But as soon as you get into First Corps territory, it says Hood's Division, Pickett's Division, McClaw's Division. You wouldn't know, based on the markers that were influenced by Douglas Southall Freeman, that Longstreet was ever on the field. I mean, he's literally erased off the battlefield. I didn't and know And then that. if you look at um, at Chancellorsville, you know, Stonewall Jackson gets a visitor center, he gets a big parking lot, he gets a daily walking tour, and just three miles down the road at the Wilderness, there's a 30-minute pull-off with three parking spaces for Longstreet's wounding. And uh, again, if you kind of look at the resources that the Park Service and Park Service personnel developed toward those two stories over the years and the emphasis it put on both of them, Jackson seems much, much more important than Longstreet does in telling the story of the battles around him. And yet when Lee, remember when, when, when they were both commissioned lieutenant general, Lee made sure that Longstreet's commission was predated, predated Jackson's by one day so that he would always have seniority, which I think says again a lot about Lee's thinking about these two men. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was just thinking that I, I wonder to what extent those uh, battlefield markers uh, would have been based on the official records, which you know what eighteen we're talking eighteen eighties when those come out. Uh, um, well, so so this becomes a park here. Uh, the the um, I mean the the OR. in the nineteen. Oh yeah, the ORs. Yeah, eighteen. Yeah. I, I, I'm wondering because uh, there's a new book coming out in a couple of weeks by Yale Sternhell. I forgot the title of it. I think it's The War on Record. It's published, it's to be published by Yale University Press. But essentially, um, it's a book about the creation of the OR. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, this is a wonderful example of the way in which, you know, our narrative of the Civil War takes shape because all of us use the OR. We don't even think about it. I think many of us consider it the foundation for what we do. And yet how many of us, you know, have thought carefully about how it came about, how the stories uh, made it into the, the OR and what gets left out. I'm wondering if there is a kind of long street um, bias in the OR in some ways, but I don't know, but it just made me think about that. And that's a great point. 
So and, and so and these are all like really subtle, insidious ways in which the story then gets remembered or not, and, and in ways that people get canceled or not. That I think folks aren't even aware that canceling is happening. You know, so it's just kind of fascinating. So uh, as we wrap up, um, Kevin, any final thoughts? Todd, any final thoughts? Go ahead, Todd. Well, I was just going to say I think that your your point about Freeman. The influence of those markers being written under the sort of the, the guidance uh, of, of Freeman playing a part in all this, again, as the first trained historian who's actually writing this narrative for the first time, he is going to set the tone for the rest of the 20th century, almost, right up until really the Killer Angels and this, and this reconstitution of Longstreet that we were just talking about. Although I will say to his credit, if you look at Lee's lieutenants, and he's, he talks about Jeb Stewart's off riding a raid, and and there's a there's a they stumble into a battle at Gettysburg. Yule doesn't take Culp's Hill on the first day. Longstreet maybe you know it's not into position. Um, all these things that happen, but he says, remember though, we could blame this one, blame that one, but who was in command? And ultimately he says we have to blame Robert E. Lee. I mean, I think somehow we've forgotten that Freeman in the end says he was in command. He does bear that responsibility for what happened that day. And we can pretend that somehow he was infallible, the saintly Lee, never made a mistake. And yet he made plenty of them. And Freeman pointed that out that Gettysburg was Lee's failure. Kevin, any final thoughts? I'll, I'll just say, given our, our topic today, I guess I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, let's not get so bogged down and worrying about quote unquote cancel culture. Um, I think as we've talked over the last hour or so, um, hopefully listeners will get the sense that there's nothing new about where we are as a nation in terms of our debate about history, about what stories we should be telling and who gets to tell those stories. Uh, all of that is an ongoing process. But I guess I want to end by just reminding all of us that one of the nice things about living in a place like the United States is uh, that you always have the freedom to, um, you know, to go to the library or the bookstore and buy books and other things about the subjects that you are interested in reading about. And you also have the freedom uh, to study those topics for yourself, whether it's in the archives or, or elsewhere. So uh, nobody is being prevented from doing anything when it comes to investigating and, and thinking about the, the past. And that's a really good point, Kevin, that you make. The past the history is not something that is settled. It is a constant ongoing argument. It's an argument about what does the past mean? What happened? Why did it happen? What does that mean to us today? How can we use the knowledge of that to create a better future? And that the argument itself, just like the revision is built into it by definition, the argument is built into it by definition. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. It's not a set. It's, we didn't get it from Moses carved into stone and that somehow some bad person's come along now trying to erase all that. It is the stones get written and they get thrown aside. It's constantly changing all that. And that's really the power of it in the end. If you think about it, it's a living, breathing, powerful discipline that's really about the future, not so much about the past. It's really about the future and where we're going in the end. And so we should, I think your point's excellent. Just relax and let's enjoy this 
and let's try to understand it and not get upset if it if it doesn't conform with what we thought we've always been told. Well said. Yeah. And I think that's really important, you know, approaching it with a sense of inquiry and openness and honesty and as opposed to, yeah, a sense of wonder. That's a great way of putting it as opposed to a sense of, uh, I want reinforced. I want, to, I'm going to be defensive about this, be open. And there are all sorts of wonderful things you can discover if you are. So um, I'm going to point people to civil war memory on Substack. Kevin's uh, daily uh, Substack is just absolutely excellent for understanding a lot of these complexities. I love the way that he wrestles with these, Kevin, just uh, one of my favorite commentators on, on what's going on in the field today. Thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate that, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And if you find yourselves down in Savannah way, uh, you got to stop by the Georgia Historical Society and, and pay a visit. Uh, Todd, you've got a fantastic collection there. Tell us just uh, briefly a little bit about it. Oh, wow. So uh, it's the oldest collection of Georgia history materials in the nation. We're headquartered in Savannah because we were founded in 1839. 1839, there is no Atlanta. Uh, the capital was in Milledgeville at that time. So we've been in continuous operation almost 185 years. And uh, there are 5 million rare books, manuscripts, architectural drawings, artifacts, photographs, uh, and it covers the whole range of Georgia and uh, history and the state itself, all the way from the founders. We have the papers of Vince, Coach Vince Dooley here at the Georgia Historical Society. Uh, we have Griffin Bell's, Attorney General Griffin Bell, so it really does run sort of the whole gamut uh, of Georgia history. So Bernie Marcus, the founder of Home Depot, we have his papers here. So it really does sort of run that whole gamut. And there's a very rich Civil War collection uh, that is here as well. And it deals with both the East and the West. Uh, so it's not, just, it's not just focused on one particular area. So please come down and do research with us. Go to georgiahistory.com, which is our website. And if you want to read some more about John B. Gordon and you don't want to read a full book, you can go to my essay on the New Georgia Encyclopedia about John B. Gordon. Very good. Thank you so much, Todd. Todd, thanks for being with us. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. This was a great treat for me. Thank you both. Thank you. Our pleasure. So we'll see you online and on the battlefield. Thanks for being with us. If you like what you've heard today, please be sure to like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about what we've got going on here at the Emerging Civil War Podcast, and they too can be part of this conversation about America's defining event. Special thanks today to Edward Alexander, our producer, Sarah K. Byerly, our associate producer, and Jackson Mikowski, our sound engineer, who pieces all these audio puzzle pieces together for us. Thanks also to the Second South Carolina String Band for the theme music that they provide. You can find them on YouTube and on Facebook. Just search for Second South Carolina String Band. And of course, don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. More than 30 historians providing free content every day with lots of different backgrounds and writing styles and interests. And it's a conversation we want you to be part of. So join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. Thanks to our sponsor, Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum. With more than 1,500 sites in six states, check them out at CivilWarTrails.org to request your free brochure and start planning your trip today. On behalf of Kevin Levin and Todd Gross, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. We will see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>